Thanks for tuning in to Mountain View Fellowship's weekly podcast. At MVF, our mandate is pointing people to Jesus by fostering relationships. We know Jesus cared for people and placed a lot of emphasis on relationships. So we do too. We believe that we're created for relationship with God and that He gave each one of us a desire to belong. If you'd like more information about MVF, connect with us at mvfcolorado.com. Now, stay tuned for this week's message. We're in a series right now called Why He Came. The He is Jesus, in case you're new to church. If you're new to church, it's Jesus, always Jesus. And the sermon today is why Jesus came. It's his promises and his plan. And uh, my prayer is that as I preach this morning, that God will be further magnified in the teaching of his word. So why Jesus came? Well, he came to fulfill the promises of God and to pay the penalty of our sins so that we can be reconciled to God. That's the the simple version. That's what Pastor Don talked about last week if you were here. Uh, We have a problem. You see, we're separated from God by our sin. We need to be reconciled to God and Jesus he is our champion. He is the one who did for us what we could never do for ourselves. So if you have uh, the cards in front of you, you might notice when you stood on a chair this morning, there were little white cards. There are verses on those cards. Go ahead and pick one of those up or go ahead and pick five of them up if you're near some empty chairs. And I want to do something with us just as I begin the message here this morning. On these cards are verses that explain why Jesus came or why he was sent, or something to that effect. You'll see those words highlighted. And there are several verses, 28 of them, in fact, that I found that I wanted to use for these purposes. And so what I want you to do is maybe gather with two or three, four people around you, and just read the verse that you have on your card, and they can read the verse they have and go around in a circle and read those. Can we do that? If you don't know somebody beside you, just introduce yourself. Say, hi, I'm Tim, and this is the verse I got. Here's what I have. And just go ahead and do that right now, if you would. That's a beautiful sound, people reading scriptures with one another. And some of you introduce yourself as Tim to the person beside you. That was kind of weird, but keep on, keep on going. Uh, you have those cards in your hands. Here's what I want you to do with them. Gather as many as you can and, and stick them up on your fridge. Put them up on a magnet so that you can remember all throughout Advent, all throughout Christmas season, this is why Jesus came. These are some of the reasons that Jesus came. Or use them as a bookmark in your Bible or something like that. I hope you take those home with you. Um, it's just highlighting there's so many important reasons why Jesus came. And this is part of the, the privilege that we have of studying God's Word together. Because the mistake that a lot of people make when it comes to Christmas is that we, we leave Jesus in the manger. We've all heard the story, the angels, the shepherds, and it, it's wonderful, it's glorious, it's very important. But we have to be careful not to romanticize the Christmas story such that we just kind of get into this, oh, that's very comfortable, very familiar. Yes, I know how that goes. I know what happens next. And we forget why Jesus actually had to come to this earth in the first place. In fact, this Christmas, there will be many false religions and false cults that will celebrate Christmas. They believe in Christmas. They believe in the nativity. They believe that Jesus came. They have no idea why, and they don't know Jesus. They'll miss Jesus this Christmas, even though they celebrate with the manger. They put the decorations up and all this, and somehow, amazingly, they will miss Jesus. We don't want to do that. We don't want to leave Jesus in a manger because without him coming, there would be no cross, which is what really is why he came. He came to give his life as a sacrifice for sin. So in the scripture, we have several symbols given to us that are what I would call kind of underlying themes throughout the whole of scripture. And I'm going to walk you through the Bible this morning, the entire Bible, 
we'll be here till about 2025. Hope you're okay with that. We're going to walk through the whole Bible. Some of you are actually excited about that. That's cool. Uh, but we have these underlying symbols that help us understand the entire story of the Bible. If you get these right, you will be able to explain to anybody what is actually going on in the whole Bible, all 66 books. You see, it's about a snake, and it's about a tree. And those themes, if you understand how they tie into every page of Scripture, you will understand the Bible um, better than 99% of your friends. So these two things can help you understand what in the world does a snake have to do with Christmas. Well, I'm going to tell you, and I'm going to start by going all the way to the book of Titus, where we explain what's going on here. Paul writes to his friend Titus. He says, this letter is from Paul, a slave of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, I've been sent to proclaim faith to those God has chosen and to teach them to know the truth that shows them how to live godly lives. This truth gives them confidence that they have eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised them before the world began. Did you catch this? That God made a promise to bring eternal life before the world began. He saw our sin in eternity past, and yet he still chose to create us. He knew the dumpster fire that our world would become in 2022 under our sinful leaders, our corrupt ideological agendas, and the evil people who oppress us, and yet he still chose to make each one of us. He created you and me knowing full well that we would turn our backs on him and that he would one day have to come and give his life on a cross, and yet he still chose to create it. Why? Because he made a promise that he would bring eternal life. That is going to become the backdrop of the entire Bible. God promised to bring eternal life. And so let's talk about this tree that we had in the beginning. Actually, in the Garden of Eden, there were two trees that are of very significant importance. When God made Adam and Eve, he sent them amongst probably millions of trees in the Garden of Eden, but there were two very important ones that are going to factor into our story today. Let me read for you from Genesis 2, 7 to 9. I'm going to move through a lot of scripture here this morning. It's not all going to be on the screen, but I'm going to read for you from Genesis chapter 2, 7 to 9. It says, The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils. The man became a living person. Then the Lord planted a garden in, in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had made. The Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and produced delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so some of you may know this story, but Adam and Eve were forbidden by God from eating from this tree that was uh, the knowledge of good and evil. And of the millions of trees that they could have eaten from, there was only one in the whole garden that they were forbidden by God from eating. Yeah, you can eat everything else, all the bananas, all the oranges, all the apples. They're all yours, every kind of fruit you'd ever imagine. Beautiful, lush, ripe fruit. But the one that's in the middle of the garden, you cannot eat from it. And so we have introduced to us what we call the law of sin, the law of temptation. If you tell me I can't have something, what's the one thing I want? The thing you told me I couldn't have. Some of you know this to be true if you've ever tried to diet. Now it's all you can think about all the time. Food, cake, whatever you want. It's the law of sin. It's the law of temptation. Those of us who understand the word of God to be true and we want to live in a way that honors God, we understand about sexual temptation. You tell me I have to stay married to my wife and only her and no one else as long as I live. What do I want all of a sudden? Step outside of that. The temptation tells me I want what I can't have. You tell me I can't have it, that makes me want it all the more. That's the law of sin, the law of temptation, and it was established from the Garden of Eden. We understand that we have this knowledge of good and evil now. 
So God forbade them from eating them from this one tree, but he gave them free will. Gave them the ability to make the wrong choice. And they free willed, all right. They free willed themselves and all of us by proxy into a world of sin and destruction and death. And now we all partake of that. You see, when our first ancestors sinned, they were then blocked from eating of the tree of life. Only this time, God made certain they would not eat from it. And we read about that in Genesis chapter 3. God pronounces judgment on the soil. The soil is now going to bring forth weeds and thorns and goat heads. Right? The soil is going to be hard to work. It's going to be toilsome. God also pronounced judgment upon the woman, specifically that her childbirth would now become painful. But he also had a judgment for the serpent. And I'll get to that in a second. But here's what the Lord said in Genesis 3. The Lord said, look, the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil. What if they reach out and take from the fruit of the tree of life and eat it. Then they will live forever. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden. He sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. After sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim to the east of the Garden of Eden, and he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So God sends mighty angels with flaming swords to block Adam and Eve from ever partaking of the tree of life. Why? Because God could not allow sinful humans to live eternally in their sinful state. That's why he had to block it. And in fact, that is why, to this day, the death rate on planet Earth continues to be a stubborn 100%. Did you realize that? The Bible tells us that the soul that sins shall die. And since all of us sin, all of us must die. Our bodies must die. That is our just punishment for our rebellion against God. Our physical bodies must die because of sin. And God will not allow us to live forever, eternally, on earth, in our sinful, broken state. In fact, that is actually what hell is. Hell is eternal existence in a place where you are stuck with your sin forever, endlessly sinning, and can never die to escape yourself. And so humanity is now stuck in this sinful, cursed earth where there will be hatred and there will be sickness and there will be death and there will be war. That's what came of eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You see, now we know what good and evil are. All of us have a conscience that God has planted in us. We know what good and evil are. And now that we know, the Bible says we become slaves to sin. We can't help it. We can't stop sinning. If you could stop sinning, you would have already done it by now. We can't stop sinning. We perpetually know, or rather, we perpetually want the things that God has told us no. Wherever there's a barrier, wherever there's a law that God has given us, we perpetually want what is outside of that from now on. That's what happens outside of Eden. And so I want to introduce you to the snake here this morning. And the snake is one of those themes that goes through the whole Bible. You see him at the beginning here. You'll see him at the cross of Christ. You'll see him at the end of the story as well. But let me tell you what happened with the snake. So God curses the, the soil. He gives man the, the toil that he has to go with with uh, the rest of his life, working from the sweat of his brow to earn a living. The women are, are cursed in the pain of childbirth. And the Satan, he gets his own judgment here. So God curses the soil. Uh, verse Genesis uh, 3, 14 and 15, The Lord said to the serpent, here's his curse, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. From this point on, the entire Bible is about the fulfillment of all that just happened in these two verses. 
It's going to follow the offspring of the woman, which is, by the way, all of us here. You all came from a woman, in case you didn't know that. Ask your parents how that works. But all the rest of Scripture is now going to flow and follow the story of the woman. Do you know why things like abortion and attacks on marriage are so big on our culture today? Why the attack on our children and trying to confuse them? It's because Satan hates children. He hates the offspring of the woman, which means all of us. Understand that this is now the mega narrative of Scripture. This is what the whole Bible is going to be about. The story of the Bible from here on is going to be about Satan's hatred of all the children who will be born to the woman. So attacks on the family, attacks on marriage, child trafficking, all of it, Satan is behind all of that. The story now has to do with how is one of the offspring of this woman going to deal a mortal wound to the serpent's head? It says it's going to strike his head, which means to crush the head. If you have a crushed head, you're dead. But what it says is going to happen is that the Satan or the, the devil is going to strike the heel or crush the heel of the, the child of the woman. Well, a crushed heel is very painful, but it's not a mortal wound. A crushed head is a mortal wound. And so you understand there's going to be this hostility now between the, the seed of Satan and the seed of the woman. The devil is the great deceiver who speaks lies, and that's how he's going to roll all throughout history. And so the question that is begged in this, in this passage is, who is going to be that child of the woman who's going to destroy the works of the devil? Who will that be? Who is going to defeat Satan's terrible grip on humanity? All right, I want to go to the book of Numbers now. We're going to go kind of chronologically through the Bible a little bit. The book of Numbers, chapter 21, the children of Israel have been in slavery for 400 years. God has promised to deliver. They're now walking through the wilderness. They sin again and again. And so God says, actually, you're not going to get to the promised land right away. You're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until this entire generation has died. And then I'll bring you to the promised land because you're, you're way too sinful. And so one of these episodes, they're walking. Uh, it says Israel set out from the Mount Hor taking the road to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. But the people grew impatient with the long journey, and they began to speak against God and Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die here in the wilderness, they complained. There's nothing to eat here, nothing to drink, and we hate this horrible manna. You see, God had been providing manna from heaven every day. It was a magical substance that sustained them with every vitamin and nutrient they needed for 40 years. This is incredible. God provided for them, but they complained. You'd complain, too, if you ate the same thing for 40 years, just to be fair, right? You'd complain, too, but it's the way they complained. They didn't come humbly before God. Instead, they say, Moses, you brought us out here to die. And so the Lord sends poisonous snakes among the people. Many were bitten and died. Then the people came to Moses and cried out, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take away the snakes. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord told him, Make a replica of a poisonous snake and attach it to a pole. All who are bitten will live if they simply look at it. So Moses made a snake out of, a bronze, out of bronze and attached it to a pole. Then anyone who is bitten by a snake could look at the bronze snake and be healed. You know, one of the things, one of the sins that God hates is ingratitude. Or blaming God when our own sin backfires on us. This is what the children of Israel were doing, and it makes God so angry, and so he's punishing them. They're being disciplined here. There's a few artist conceptions of what that might have looked like. And so what is God doing here? 
well, he's making provision in line with the promise that he made. Here it is. God made provision to heal and forgive people of the consequences of their rebellion against God. We see that already in the book of Numbers. And to this day, the symbol of a snake on a pole is used for... Did you know that? Have you seen this before? Where does that come from? It's right in plain sight every day of our lives. Some people will tell you, well, that's actually a Greek god, you know, Greek mythology type of thing. Well, guess what? This happened a thousand years before Greek mythology ever existed. So you can tell people when you see that, you go to the pharmacy, you go to the doctor, you see the snake on a pole. Actually, that symbol comes from right here in the book of Numbers, and it's used as a sign of healing to this day. I think that's pretty cool. All because of this. So we follow the chronology of the Bible a little bit further. We get into the books of Chronicles and Kings. Now Israel has a king. Has a, it begins with King Saul, who is mostly a bad king. King David comes to power. He's mostly a good king. In fact, he's called a man after God's own heart by God himself, even though he made some very bad mistakes. And then Solomon, his son, takes over. Solomon starts out as an awesome king. He just does everything right for a point in time, but he finishes poorly. He becomes an idolater. And then the, king after, or the kingdom after him is, is destroyed. It's, it's, uh, it's disseminated and divided. And so we have the story of all the kings that would follow, most of them bad, most of them leading the nation away from God. But there was one king named Hezekiah who came to power, and it says in 2 Kings 18 that he removed pagan shrines, he smashed the sacred pillars, he cut down the Asherah poles, he broke up the bronze serpent that Moses had made, Okay, this is hundreds of years later, since the bronze serpent. He breaks up the serpent that Moses had made because the children of Israel had been offering sacrifices to it. The bronze serpent was called Nehushtan. And really what that goes on to mean is a fetter or a bond or a trap to bind people. Instead of worshiping the God who provided miraculous healing, people were now worshiping the symbol of the healing Instead of having a relationship with God, giving thanks in their hearts, they invented their own religion around the very object that was supposed to remind them of God's loving provision, you see. Let's fast forward on into the New Testament now. We're going into the book of Matthew. Here's another time where the snake appears in Scripture. Jesus is about to go to the cross, and before he does, he pronounces judgment, seven judgments, on the religious teachers of his day. They were evil. They were using religion to manipulate and control people. It kind of sounds like today, huh? People use religion to control and manipulate people. It's not about a relationship with God. It's about following the rules. And so Jesus has a pronouncement against these Pharisees. And he, he says in verse 33, But in saying that, you testify against yourselves that you are indeed the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead and finish what your ancestors started. Snakes! Son of vipers, how will you escape the judgment of hell? Jesus is laying it on thick here. He, he shows just how sneaky and insidious false religion is. And there are many false religions today that claim to be about God. Some of them even use the name Jesus in their name. And Jesus gives the strongest rebuke to those who try to use religion to control people. He called them serpents, sons of vipers, spawn of Satan. You see, false religion to this day remains one of Satan's greatest traps. And so continuing in the chronology of the Bible, we come to John chapter 3. Jesus is having a discussion now with one of these specific religious leaders. His name is Nicodemus. And he tells him, 
Listen, no one has ever gone to heaven and returned, but the Son of Man has come down from heaven. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son, that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. God sent his Son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him. But anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only Son. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people love the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. And so Jesus is pointing to himself. He's pointing to himself as God's provision to heal and forgive people of the consequences of the rebellion against God. It's the exact same metaphor as the serpent. You see this? Jesus becomes cursed for us. Just as the serpent had been cursed by God, now Jesus bears the curse of our sin upon himself. It says in the book of Galatians chapter 3, but Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. For it is written in the scriptures, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. By the way, are you seeing this here? There's a tree reappearing. We've been talking about the snake, now the tree reappears. Only this time, instead of being a tree of life, it's a tree of death. It's a tree of crucifixion and torture. And Jesus goes and his life is sucked out of him by that tree. And he did it for you and me. His blood poured out for the cleansing and forgiveness of our sin. Why? Because I want you to see the striking parallel. God made provision. I already showed you this, right? He made provision to heal and forgive people of the consequences of the rebellion against God. I want us to understand what, what Jesus has done for us on the cross. I want you to see that striking parallel. You'll remember back in the time when the serpent was put on the pole, you know what happened to that snake? The people started worshiping it, right? That's what happened after the bronze snake. Well, guess what? Just like that, another parallel is that after the cross, people began to worship religion and shrines and buildings. And millions of people even wear a cross around their neck or tattoo. And yet they know nothing about Jesus. They have no relationship with him at all. They are completely blinded by their sins and spiritually dead. They trust in some kind of mystical power of religion or some kind of mystical power of a religious object or a shrine or, or going through a religious ceremony or listening to some kind of self-important religious leader instead of having a personal relationship with God, coming to Jesus on his terms in order to have their sins forgiven. We've got to understand this this morning, friends. Every one of us in this room has been bitten by the snake. We've been bitten by the sin that now condemns us. And it's hopeless unless somebody steps in for us. And so Jesus is God's provision. When we were still dead in our trespasses and our sin, when we were still enemies of God, the Bible says Jesus came and gave his life for us so that we could experience eternal life. Faith in Jesus Christ alone is the only way to be reconciled to God. Religion will never get you to God. You can be baptized. You can take communion. You can give money to the church. 
You can serve and, and do charitable acts all you want. Nothing like that will ever save you. It doesn't matter if you grew up in a church-going family. Your grandmother was very religious. That will not save you. Only thing that will save you is turning to Christ on his terms in a way that he alone makes possible at the cross. You see, all works are off the table when it comes to Jesus, and religion is about works. Religion is about what I do to get to God so that he'll like me and he'll let me in. Every cult, same thing. It's always works. Do the list so that God will accept you. But Jesus says, my way is entirely different. You look up at the cross. You look up at what the Savior did for you. That's how you're saved. You believe in what he did for you. That's the only way we could ever be reconciled to God. Because if you could have done it yourself, you would have already tried and done it. You can't. Religion is a dead end. Let me take you further into the Bible, in the book of Romans now. Paul ends his book with his amazing statement, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. This verse clearly points back to the whole promise that God made in Genesis chapter 3, in which the offspring of the woman, who we now know to be Jesus, the perfect offspring of, G of uh, the woman is Jesus, he is going to crush the head of the serpent. The imagery is so rich because the Bible is a perfect unity. The Bible is one story all the way through, and I want you to see that this morning. What about this peace? Well, there is no peace on earth that is even possible until Satan is crushed. Why? Because the Bible clearly says that Satan is still the God of this world. Jesus is not reigning on earth right now. That's bad theology. He reigns only in the hearts of those who believe in him, those who have turned to him and had their sins forgiven. And we're called the church. There is peace for us who believe in Christ because we've been reconciled to God. But peace on earth is going to be elusive until the day that Christ finally returns to deal the crushing blow to the serpent. We have to understand that about the world that we live in, okay? Let me go now to the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. John was one of the disciples who walked with Jesus, and in late in life, he receives a vision from God. He, he's told to write it down because this is very important for the church right now. Chapter 20 of Revelation, John says this, I saw an angel coming down from heaven with the key to the bottomless pit and a heavy chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that old serpent who is the devil, Satan, and bound him with chains for a thousand years. The angel threw him into the bottomless pit, which he then shut and locked, so Satan could not deceive the nations anymore until the thousand years were finished. Afterwards, he must be released for a little while. Okay, check this out. At the end of history, Jesus is going to make good on his dealing with Satan, the serpent. What has Satan been doing from the beginning? That passage just told us he's been deceiving the nations. That is how Satan rolls. Why is America in the trouble she is in right now? It's because our leaders have been deceived by Satan. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. It is about demonic powers that are operating behind the veil that we can't see. What is Satan up to in the world right now? He's deceiving the nations, not just America. It's every nation on earth. Look around at the bewildering things that are happening in our world. In China and in Russia, Ukraine, in Haiti, Venezuela, the horrible places where there is like literally hell on earth right now. What is that all about? It's because Satan is deceiving the nations. And so what do they do? They make godless law after godless law. Rather than obeying God's commands, they, they keep making laws based on the devil's lies. 
Why? Because the devil has deceived them. Understand that. Pray for your nation's leaders, church. They are deceived because Satan is still the god of this world. And we who've had our eyes open understand the end from the beginning because it's about the snake who's still at work. We keep going in Revelation chapter 20. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be let out of his prison for a little while. It says he will go out to deceive the nations. Why? Because that's the only trick Satan has. He's going to go back to doing what he's always been doing after this thousand-year period that we call the millennium. He's going to come back, and he's going to start deceiving the nations again. But then Jesus is going to deal a final blow to him. And the devil, it says, who had deceived them was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, joining the beast and the false prophet. There they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. You see, the serpent's fate is the lake of fire. That's how the Satan's head is going to be crushed in the lake of fire forever. Jesus wins. And we who obey him will win too because we're promised all of the inheritance that belongs to Jesus will also be shared with us. That is the good news of Jesus. So we followed the snake to his fiery demise. What about the tree? Got to finish up with the tree. Revelation 22, the last chapter of the Bible. John has another vision this time. He says, the angel showed me a river with the water of life. By the way, there was a river in Eden too, back at the very beginning. You remember that? There was a river there. I didn't have time to get into that this morning. But here it is again. This river, clear as crystal, it says, it flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It flowed down the center of the main street, and on each side of the river grew a tree of life. Now there's two trees of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit uh, with a fresh crop each month. These are amazing trees. 12 different crops, 12 months of the year. Their leaves are used for medicine to heal the nations. Compare that with how the devil rolls, which is to deceive the nations. Now God has made provision to heal the nations. No longer will there be a curse upon anything. The curse pronounced in Genesis will be done. Why? Because uh, the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there, and the servants will be there with him to worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be written on their foreheads, and there will be no night there, no need for lamps or sun, for the Lord God will shine on them, and they will reign forever and ever. Blessed are those who wash their robes. They will be permitted to enter through the gates of the city and eat from the tree of life. You see, in the final page of history, what happens? God makes good on his promise. Remember his promise? Before the world began, he promised to bring eternal life. At the Garden of Eden, he had to block the way to the tree of life. Why? Because if they would eat of it, they would have lived forever in their sinful state. Now we come to the tree, which is the cross of Christ, which is now an instrument of death and torture. It's sucking the life out of the Savior, the Lord of life. But he does so so that we could be redeemed, so that we could be saved. And then at the end of history, the very last chapter of the Bible, what do we see happening? There is the tree again. And who is permitted to reach out their hand and take from the tree of life and live forever? I just read it for you. It's the people who've washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb, which is a metaphor for having trusted in Christ as their Savior. Those are the ones who get to come to the tree of life at the very end of the chapter and take a hold of that fruit that was long promised to them, and they live forever. That's how the Bible ends, folks. It's a perfect unity. It's a perfect story from beginning to end, following the path of the snake and of the tree. And in the end, we who love the Lord, we who have believed on him and had our sins forgiven by the washing of the blood of the lamb, we get to partake of that tree, and God's promise will be fulfilled to us. This is the gospel. This is the good news. 
and it's available to every person in this place today. Why? Because Jesus loves us so much. Here's what God did. You've seen this before, but repetition helps us, right? God made provision to heal and forgive people of the consequences of their rebellion against God. This is good news. I wouldn't mind hearing an amen right now. (laughs) Come on, somebody. This is the gospel. A whole lot of bad news in order to get us to the good news, right? We have to understand the story of Scripture in order to understand our desperate need for a Savior. You can't get someone saved until they are fully convinced that they need a Savior to rescue them from the coming judgment. You can't tell people, well, you know, Jesus just wants to be your friend. He just wants to, you know, kind of like a pet to have around. That's not what Jesus came for. He came to give us eternal life and to deal with the consequences of our sin. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's why we're here today. That's why we worship him. I wonder if someone here this morning, under the sound of my voice, has come to the realization that they need a Savior this morning, that you've been bitten by the snake that you need redemption, that you need salvation, because if you don't, the consequence is severe and it's eternal. Would you bow your heads with me right now? If you know Jesus right now, please be praying. Some of you here this morning, I believe there could be 15, 20, 30 of you in this room right now who have never made this decision to follow Christ, never made this decision that you know in your heart you have sinned against God, you're separated from God, you're alienated from Him, and you need a Savior to reach down because you've been bitten by the snake of sin, and there is no rescue until Jesus comes on the scene. And He stands this morning with His arms extended to you and invites you to come to Him to receive the forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life. It's yours for the taking this morning. So with every head bowed, every eye closed, if you want to pray that prayer this morning, you've never done this before, but you feel that that God is pushing on your heart right now and a decision needs to be made, then I want you to just pray this very simple prayer. Tell God in your own words, doesn't have to be my exact words, but from your heart, God, I know that I'm a sinner. I acknowledge that. And I believe that I need a Savior who is strong enough to save me. And I believe that Savior is Jesus. Jesus, I thank you that your blood was shed on the cross for me. You poured out your blood for me that I could be saved. And I receive your forgiveness of sins right now. I receive the blood of Jesus as payment for my sins. And God, I believe that three days later, Jesus rose up from the grave. And because of that, we have eternal life. And I believe that. And I receive eternal life right now. I welcome you into my life wholeheartedly. Now, God, help me to live for you. Help me to turn away from my sin. Help me to follow Jesus, obey him, and honor him with my life. If that is your heart's desire this morning, you have become a child of God in this moment. And if you prayed that prayer this morning, would you just slip up your hand right where you are? Just slip up your hand. If you prayed that prayer this morning, you're trusting Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins. Amen. Amen. 
God is so good to us. He's so faithful to us. He is a kind and loving Father, and he's made provision for us to enter into a, a good and right relationship with himself. If you prayed that prayer this morning, the Bible says there are angels in heaven rejoicing right now. They're rejoicing because you've come into the family of God. You're now a child of God. You've been forgiven. You've been washed clean of your sins. It's the most beautiful thing in the world. The most important decision you will ever make to make Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior.